Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. It It's snowing again. I swear to God. I moved back east, and New Jersey is getting, like, the worst winter. And what's awful about this is the condo that we live in, we're on a court. Uh, you know, so you sit there. It's a cul-de-sac. And the one side, for some reason, the snow does not land. They get nothing. Our side must be in the shade. I have to go out and shovel after I record this episode. So I'm just telling you, I can't be, I'm, the cold's driving me crazy, but it was my choice and it's all good. And that's about it. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who uh, was on the show a few years ago. And since then, we want to talk about, he recently was on tour with Mr. Big and, you know, Paul Gilbert and Billy Sheehan and, and, uh, and Eric Martin have all been on, on the show before. And my guest is Matt Starr. How you doing, Matt? Hey, how are you? Good. You know what's funny? It turns out, well, you're from back east, and I, I have to ask you this. And, you know, I, I sent it to you an email, and I saw a picture with you, and we're both good friends with Rich Redman. I saw pictures with you with him, and I saw pictures when you were on the road with Mr. Big. But your scarves always look great. I grew up back east. I'm back east. I can't, I can't tie a scarf worth of crap. But you sit there. You look like a damn male model. Where did you learn to tie a scarf like that? It's, it's, it, it gets me jealous. I learned how to tie a scarf uh, in 1999 in South Korea. So I, like you, I grew up in Connecticut. We are freezing our asses off. A scarf is fully functional. You don't care what color it is. You don't care if your grandmother knitted it. You just need to keep your neck and your head as warm as possible. So I would just wrap it around and around and around and shove it down in my coat and then put my coat on. But I was in South Korea, and they just have great style over there. And... What they do is, they have re- first of all, they have really long scarves. So if you put it around your neck, it would go down to about your knees almost. <laughs> so they take it, fold it in half like that, put the double wide version of it around your neck, and then take the two ends and put that inside the loop. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And then you pull on the, the ends, and it pulls it tight, and it's got this cool thing. It actually works. And looks good, but it's a little bit better than just kind of wrapping it around your neck like you're about to go shovel a driveway. That's funny. And now, what is with drummers and scarves? Because I think Mark Shoma was in your picture, too. You guys were all, it was you, Mark, Jason Suter, I think, and Rich, and someone else. And you're all on, like, top of a roof or something. What is it with drummers and scarves? Is that a, is drummers, you guys match to your own tune. You know, I know you're a, you're a public speaker, and, and you, you know, you guys are always merchandising, and you got your shrewd businessmen. But what's with drummers and scarves? Well, it's all we got because you're never going to see our shoes. You're probably not going to see our pants. And this is something I just was talking about last night. I played, uh, there was a tribute at the Whiskey, and I said, I'm only playing three songs. I got a nice button shirt. I'll roll it to sleep. One song, I'm sweating like a pig. So we kind of end up getting relegated to wearing T-shirts on stage. Otherwise, you're just destroying your clothes. I have tons of shirts and jackets that literally have the white from my sweat staining the back of the, of the shirt. So a scarf, you know, and maybe sunglasses. I mean, that's about all you got and hats, you know? So now I know, you know, we're going to talk about your earlier career, but you recently, you and you, you toured with Mr. Big. I don't know if you guys are going out again. And Mr. Big, you know, is a legendary group. And, and now... How did you end up with them? Because I know their drummer, um, is it Pat Torpe? He's, you know, has some health problems. But how did you end up getting in with them? And, and, I mean, for you, that must be a really big compliment because 
all the men, all the guys in that group are very, you know, very respected and, you know, ranked very high in what they do, whether it be bassist, singer, guitar. How did it, how did you come about to getting in that group? Yeah, I, I just, um, I was saying the other day that I had, you know, I had a lot of times people go, well, you know, who are you playing with? And I go, you know, Mr. Big, and they say, you play Billy Sheehan and Paul Gilbert? You must be good. You know, so it's kind of like, even if they haven't heard me play, it's just sort of like, you know, they just assume that, okay, this guy's got to be at least semi-competent. So, um, I was playing at a jam in Hollywood. This is, you know, uh, four or five years ago. Uh, I went up to play a song and the singer said hey you want do you know uh tnt by acdc i said yeah sure and then he goes hey you sing can you sing it too and i'm thinking oh come on man i was like all right you know what fine sure i'll sing it too so i sang it played drums then as soon as i got off stage billy sheen was there and he said wow he goes you sounded great who are you and we chatted a little bit and he goes i want to get your number i, I, I don't want to lose you is what he said and um we crossed paths just socially like once or twice, and then a year later he called me and said, hey, um, we might need some help on some shows. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, of course. And then he and I got together. He goes, let's just get together and play a couple of the Mr. Big songs. So we did, and then he told me that at that point that Pat Torby, the drummer, had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and um, they weren't sure how much he was going to be playing, but he was definitely going to need some some help. And so um, it, it was a whole tour, you know, and they were going around the world. So yeah, it was a, it was a, you know, it's it's, it's a weird thing because it's, it's professionally it's a great opportunity. Personally, it's like my God, what a situation, you know, and a fellow anybody, but especially a fellow drummer to have to go through that. It, you know, so I just look at it as. There's a, they need some help here, and I can I can come in and help. You know. Now, when when he had said, you know, can you you know come over and play some Mr. Big tunes? As soon as you met him, were you getting yourself familiar with playing the tunes, or did you already know how to play some of them? Or how does that work with prepping for something like that? No, I mean I hadn't. Um, I I wasn't really familiar that familiar with Mr. Big. You know, I'd heard a few things, and I, everyone heard this. You know, the to be with you, but. I'd heard a couple of the other songs, but by that point, I was going backwards and listening to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and stuff that I hadn't heard, you know, when I was growing up. So um, I wasn't. So I think he, um, I probably had like about a, f a few days. Uh, and he just, he mentioned two songs. One's called Take Cover, which has a really cool uh, drum pattern. And then another one's called Addicted to That Rush, which is one of the staples of their, of their live show. And, um, so yeah, you know, you just learn them. I mean, some guys chart, some guys write stuff out. Um, I I can chart, but I, I prefer not to. Um, so unless you just said, I got 20 songs and, and the gig is tomorrow, then I'd have to chart it out. But if I have enough time to absorb it, I'd rather do that because I don't want to be reading and playing. I just want to be playing. Now, when you sit there and when they tell you you're going to go on tour and, you know, then did you have to learn? How many songs did you have to learn? Did you have to learn a lot of their catalog? Because I know bands play on a certain set list, and I know you know that's just the way tours are, but sometimes people change it up. What is your responsibility? And also, as you being a drummer and being a lover of music, how much did you want to learn? And how? And is that a very hard process when you have the time, but it's still a big catalog? Yeah, I mean, it, when you have the time, it's actually enjoyable. I mean, if I have plenty of time which i would consider like a few weeks 
I'll just start listening to the song. So I'll, I'll make a playlist in my phone and I go for a walk, go for a run. Anything I'm doing, I just have the music on. I'm not trying to learn it. I'm not even really paying attention, just absorbing it. Because, you know, you hear a song on the radio enough and then you just, you can sing it. You've never tried to learn it. It just gets absorbed into your brain. So that, it starts with that. And then I start honing in on it. And, and then with the Mr. Big stuff, I had to play. I had to actually practice. Up, you know, <laughs> might sound like really, you know, you had to practice. But I usually don't. I really don't practice that often, you know. So if uh, someone's like, you know, if I had a, I was going to do a bunch of ACDC songs, I just listen to them and make sure I knew the arrangements, and then I wouldn't have to run through them. But the Mr. Big stuff is some of it's pretty challenging. So um, I had to get into a room and, and work some stuff out. So that was uh, it. Was challenging for sure. It was challenging, and I, you know, I, it was great because. All the, the, the stuff, I didn't know what to expect. I was thinking, my God, is this going to be like just completely out there, you know, just crazy odd time. And, but every single song is great. And then there's always a moment or two where they'll do something that that is, you know, kind of their signature thing. But it's always musical and it's always, it makes sense. It's never like, hey, look what we can do. It's always part of the song. It has melody to it. So that made it a lot easier to remember and to learn those parts. Now, were you, they also came out with a new album. Now, were you in the studio for that, or was that all Pat, or how did that work, or did you switch it off? Um, so they, when I joined, they had just released a record, and so then they just did a new record, uh, and uh, they brought me on board, and I played drums, which was uh, a great uh, experience. We did 11 songs in six days, and so... You know, both Pat and I were there, and I, to my knowledge, no one, I mean, Eric, the singer, had he clearly had worked on a couple of things with, with Paul and Billy, but for the most part, everyone was showing each other the songs that they brought in, and, and everybody was learning on the spot. So I, no one was really, like, that far ahead of me as far as learning. So Pat and I would just sit there and listen, and then I'd say, hey, you know, what do you think about this and this? And he'd go, yeah, that was cool. I was thinking maybe this and this and, and the chorus. And, okay, cool, yeah. So we were usually on the same page, and, and every once in a while, the other guy would go, what about this? And I'd be like, whoa, I didn't think of that. So that was a lot of fun. And then the coolest thing is, you know, when you track, you go into the – to the tracking room, you run through the song once or twice or three times, and then at some point you come back in and listen, and, and then you get a different perspective, but having Pat in the control room, he's getting that perspective as it's happening. So it was great, so I think it it, it, it saved a lot of time, too, because I, we do one pass, and he go, yeah, that thing was cool, but uh, you know, maybe a little more of this, and I was like, okay, great, and so that really, uh, that was a unique experience, it was a lot of fun. It must have also helped, you know, getting a little bit of bonding with the band. Because I know it was a lot of times, I don't think musicians, when you guys are, you know, drummers, like I know you drummed with Ace Freely before. And when you, and if, if you start off, you know, with them, it's one thing. And sometimes you go on tour, but actually getting to go in the studio with them must have actually got the band a little bit closer. And you probably got you to know the guys a little bit more as a musician and see what was going on. Yeah, I mean, touring will definitely get you to know you'll get to know each other really well. I think for me, with them asking me, it was just uh, a real morale booster, you know, and not that I was, was was needing it, but you know what I mean? It's a real validation of, wow, they're, they really uh, feel comfortable with me and they're, they're you know, willing to bring me in on this, this process, you know. And then it's nice, too, to play songs that are yours, 
you know, they're, they're parts that you came up with and you're, and you're not trying to emulate someone else's parts, you're playing your own. That was, uh, that was fun, too, to have some songs like that in the set. Now, you, you, I know you've traveled the world, but what was the tour like on this? What were some of your high points? I know Mr. Big is so big in Japan. I mean, I mean, and just different places. I know you posted on Facebook, you had gotten some fan art and stuff like that. Had that happened to you before, or was it just something that was a different embracing because this group is just different? I mean, you know, you play with Ace, and Ace is huge, but this group is just differently the fact that they have such an international following. What is that like for you as a drummer and just seeing getting this adoration thrown at you? The fans have been amazing, and, and as soon as it was announced that I was going to be touring with them back a few years ago, you know, my Facebook requests just piled up. That my inbox just got hammered with messages from people from all around the world saying, "Welcome, we're so happy to have you part of the family." It was really an amazing uh, experience. They have great fans, and, and the thing is, Mr. Big went and toured a lot of places overseas that fans wouldn't go. You know, and I think because of the the proficiency on the musician side. That really appealed to like the Japanese culture and different cultures that are that are really uh, you know they're tuned into that kind of stuff. In addition to liking their rock and roll, so the experience was awesome. I mean, I had to get an extra suitcase the first time I went over there because I had so many gifts. People giving me gifts for my kids, for my wife, handmade things, and you know, J- Japan is we make a car right, and it's a big, huge thing. And then they take it and they make it as small and as efficient as possible. So it's just part of their culture to have things be miniaturized. And you will get notes that are written. I feel like they were written with an eyelash. I mean, it is the <laughs> finest lines. And it is, so, it is so thoughtful, so sweet. And these little tiny pieces of paper, you know, and, and then folded and then put in an envelope. And that envelope is in another envelope. It's just it's a really charming, amazing uh, culture. Now, what was some of the coolest things you've gotten when you're on a road? I mean, some some certain things that really stuck out to you, and you were like, "Wow, this is just amazing! I can't believe someone was this creative." What were some instances of that? Yeah, I had. I think my favorite thing is actually sitting on top of my humidor in my my bedroom. Is they made? Um, I don't even know what it's made out of, but they're these like they made one for each of us, and so it's it's a little guy but the guy kind of looks like like a, a, a big french fry it's kind of a, it's not like any country you've ever seen but but mine has a mustache and he's holding drumsticks and then there's a drum set and it's all fashioned out of little pieces of plastic but he got the color and he got you know the ludwig logo is exact and, and it looks like my kit you know and uh, so that's really cool and that was in this this big clear box um so i have that and, uh, yeah, lots of just, um, you know, gifts for the kids, you know, shirts and little socks and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then whenever I go to Japan, I always get a bunch of records. So um, I came home with, I think, probably about 40 or 50 records. And uh, my drum tech was not happy because he had to carry that the airport. It was kind of heavy. Now, now, have you always been a vinyl fan, or did you break away from vinyl? Like, for me, all my vinyls at my sister's house in Virginia from when I moved across country, cross country years ago, and, you know, and by now it's probably all warped. But have you always been a vinyl collector, and is that something that you would have been if you hadn't pursued music as a living? Yeah, I would probably be even more, because if that was kind of the only way that I was experiencing music, I, I would delve more into it. I, 
I have all these records, and, and it's going to take me probably six months to listen to all of them just because I can't find the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I was born in 1970, so we had vinyl. That's, that's how we did it. And then when CDs came out, I was I was kind of blown away because they were so quiet and they were you could hear things so clearly. And um, so I kind of let my records go. And right about 1996 or seven, I bought a Technique turntable for ten bucks at a thrift shop. And then I got a replacement needle at Radio Shack for fifteen. And I started listening to records. And I had some Steve Martin albums I had picked up and some Kiss records. And it just brought me back. It was just the experience. It was just, it was just something special. So from then I started collecting. So I moved out to LA in 2001 with two milk crates full, and now I'm probably pushing about 3,000. Now, what was your biggest score? What was your favorite buy from your tour when you were in Japan? Um, I would say, well, the, in 1978, Kiss all the members did solo records. So to get Japanese pressings of that, I had Ace Fraley's solo record from last time I was there. And it was in like really good shape, but I found Ace, Paul, and Gene perfect. Dead mint with the Obi strip. They have these strips on the side that would, so the Japanese fans could see what the album was called because all the artworks in English. Um, so I had all three of those with posters, with the original inserts and all that stuff. So I think that was... Uh, I I kind of geeked out over that, and I also got a copy of Kiss Alive too, with the tattoos. Again, you kind of got to be into it to know what, what the hell I'm talking about. But with the tattoos and with the book and all the Japanese inserts, and that's got a double OB strip. And so, uh, yeah, th those are my those are my biggest scores. Now, I noticed also online that you you sell drum heads. Now, what? How does? What is that? How, where did that come from? And you know, and you sign them, and and you know, we don't think of it because you know, us people who listen to music who aren't musicians don't think that you guys, you know, you guys really beat on drums. It's not like someone has a drum set in their basement. You know, you guys beat on the drums. Do you go? How often do you go through a drum head? And where did you have the great idea to sell them? I probably go through on my on my toms. You know, those get changed every maybe once a week or a little bit more. Kick drum usually will last the whole tour. Uh, snare, we change that out every night. Um, I could probably go two nights on it, but it it really takes a beating, and it it the tone really does change. Um, and I actually gotten the idea. I believe I got the idea from John Tempesta, who is. Um, friend of mine and he's a he's a play with uh white zombie and uh, now he's with the cult for many years and uh he i was just looking at at other drummers websites and i saw his site and he had signed drum heads for sale and i thought how cool is that because you know if you just went to see the cult play in los angeles and then you could have the signed drum head from that very show it's a pretty unique thing so i started doing that and um yeah, it's been great, and the and the fan, you know, you can personalize things, and it, they get a piece of the of the night. And, and sometimes people will want ones from shows that they were at. So Mr. Big has fans that literally travel all over the world to follow the band. So whatever shows they go to, they want that as a souvenir. Or um, you know, if we play New York City or Los Angeles, I always get a lot of requests for that. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's been cool, and, and I. It, First, I have to say, I was like, really? Like, I'm selling my drum heads? That's kind of... It's like, you know what, man? If somebody wants something and it has value and it brings them happiness and it brings them some extra cash, what's the problem? So, 
have a, a no problem doing that. Now, I, I saw, I keep talking about Facebook because you have a very good page. You know, you show, not only show you, you know, your musician story, you show your, your family, and then you're always smoking cigars, you, you have the cigars and stuff like that. But I saw something that you had posted about, you know, five years ago, you decided to make a change, I believe, uh, with your career. Um, I may be wrong, but it was something like that. Did, did you, you yeah. know, reconnect yourself? What did happen? Because I know you do a lot of other work, but what what was the change you wanted to make, and what steps did you go to start making that change and that it's gotten you happier or better now? Yeah, I was coming up on uh, 38, and so getting close to 40, and I was becoming increasingly frustrated with my life. I, I was grateful. I have a wonderful wife. We were married at that time. I lived in LA. I was making a living playing music, but I was doing cover music. And that's kind of an easy thing to get roped into because cover gigs are much more common. And, um, you know, if you got your think your act together, you can get a lot of work doing that. But then you become so busy doing these cover gigs and paying your bills with it that it becomes hard to focus on other stuff. And I realized that I just wouldn't want to be a character. I wanted to be myself, and I wanted to be doing big tours, and I wanted to be riding in a tour bus, and I wanted to be playing large venues, and I really wanted to be living my dreams, and I couldn't make up excuses anymore. I couldn't say, well, you know, I'll do that before I'm 30, or I'll do that before I'm 32 or 33. It's just, that was it. And I realized looking back, I'm like, oh, that's when someone would have a midlife crisis. I mean, hopefully I'll live past 80, but, you know, you come in up on 40, and you look back over your life, and you go, geez, you know, how, how, how do I feel about this? So I realized that um, the only consistent thing in all of the situations that I was experiencing was me. So then if I needed to change something, it needed to be me. It wasn't about the music biz or the economy or, you know, whatever. It was just me. And so what I did is I reached out to uh, three drummers that I really admired, whose careers I really admired, and I went and talked to them. I think for the first time I had humility. I, I went to them and basically said, I, I don't, you know, not in this exact words, but I don't know anything. You tell me what you're doing, because whatever you're doing is working. And to that end, uh, one of my friends, Jason Sutter, and we're all, you know, Fred Rich Redman, we're all, you know, the drummer buddies. It was like a year and a half that went by, and he said to me, he goes, I didn't know you played with uh, the singer from Quiet Riot. I didn't know you played that band, Beautiful Creatures. And I realized I hadn't told him anything. I didn't go, well, I've done this and I've done that. I said, I would like you to tell me what you're doing and how you did it and, you know, how I can do the same thing. So I wasn't there to talk about myself or try and promote myself. I was just there to get information. And so as I did this, within a year, I had, uh, I was playing with Ace Frehley. So there's like my childhood hero in the first big opportunity. And so I was like, okay, this is working. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep on the shoulders of these accomplishments. I'm going to dream a bigger dream. And then, you know, a few years later, met Billy Sheehan, that transpired. And along the way, I've played with a, a lot of amazing people. Um, got some shows coming up with uh, Joel and Turner from Rainbow. I uh, played with Phil X and Bon Jovi, Doug Aldrich, who's been with White Stick now, he's with the Dead Daisies. I just have met a lot of amazing people and had a lot of incredible experiences, and I've toured the world, I play rock and roll, and I support myself, my wife, and two kids. So, and I live in West Hollywood. So, 
as I was doing this, some of the guys that I asked for advice along the way were now asking me. They're going, what the hell are you doing? Because you're like flying by all of us. And I realized that I did know what I was doing. I could tell you what I was doing because I had to fast track it. And what I realized is some guys just, some people in certain areas of life, whether it's, you know, making money or relationships or their careers, they just, they got it right. And they may not be conscious of what they're doing. They just got an energy about them and a way of thinking that just leads them to have success in that area of their life. And some guys are clear on what they're doing. So like Jason Sutter was one of those guys, and he goes, dude, I'll tell you exactly what to do. So I listened to him, and I followed his direction, and, and I kept track of what else I learned along the way as well. And then I started sharing that in my drum clinics, and those have turned into workshops. So rather than me playing drums and telling you what it's like to play with Ace Freely, I'm telling musicians how to get work, how to build their career, how to be employable. And really, first off, is just to be honest with yourself and go, what is it you really want to do? Because if you're not aware of that and you're not honest with yourself, you know, usually guys will go, I just want to get some gigs. And I'm going, the universe can't work with that. It's too vague. You walk into a store and go, yeah, I want some food. They're going to go, okay, I, what aisle? I mean, I can't, I can't help you, you know? And so then usually we talk and they go, okay. I mean, honestly, like, really what I want to do? I mean, I want to tour the world. Okay, go, there you go. The thing that you think, the thing that most people think is ridiculous or far-fetched or they're embarrassed to admit it, that's the thing you got to claim. And when you shoot for that, all this other amazing stuff happens along the way. But if you're not really shooting for the big goal, it's not going to motivate you to keep pushing. And so that's just a little bit of it, but that's, that's basically kind of a, the gist of, of what happened and how that turned into all these workshops that I do. And then now this is also my career coaching work. So I do one-on-one uh, -on -one sessions with artists all around the world. And then I'm also turning that into uh, doing public speaking. So like at corporate events and keynote addresses and stuff like that. Now, what, what do you think made you get that humility? Because like anything, you know, any of us who have performed before, I was a comic, I'm actually doing a show this weekend, a few shows this weekend, but any of us know we have that, not the ego, I think it's a, an insecurity, and, and in, in this business it seems like you always have to try to not prove yourself, but, you know, most musicians and actors and writers, you know, we, we, we do a little bit of name dropping usually. What made you sit there and pull into the humility? Did you just look in the mirror and say, listen, man, you know, I know you said you were coming close to, you know, you were 38, but what what's made you step back and do that? Because that's a very big step for anybody to take. Yeah, I think I just got, I got the wind knocked out of me. And I was done kind of telling myself, well, one day, I've always been a dreamer. And that alone is a good quality, but it's got to be backed up by a bunch of other stuff. And so, I was, you know, I just was like, you know what, I can't lie to myself i can't blame it on the scene i can't blame anybody else and i like one day when's one day i've been saying one day since i was 16 years old so i just was like i got knocked to the ground you know and i was like okay maybe i don't know i know how to play drums but i don't know what i'm doing when it comes to being essentially a businessman and what i really found out is is getting along with other people i mean i had friends and i had relationships but to do what I do, especially to be a hired guy, you've got to be able to get along with people. And you've got to be able to put your best interest or my best interest ahead of everything. And what that means is I walk into a situation 
somebody says something, it's a little, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Someone says something, okay, I could argue with them, but you know what's best for me? To keep my mouth shut and keep moving forward so I can do my job and get to the next one. So it was kind of a backwards type of thinking to what I had believed was was doing things in my best interest. Now, you had said, you know, the, the clinics went from clinics to workshops. And I know a lot of times when you guys are on tour, you know, you get into, into town and you go to a drum store and you do a clinic. When did it take the step from being a clinic to being a workshop, more or less? And was that subconsciously done or was that just by fluke and then you said wow people are really just digging this how did that happen how did you take that step i think what i found that was more satisfying for me and seemed to be uh more of a demand for out there was talking about the business side of things and and not just the business but also the career and, and ambitions and how to manage that desire and that those hopes and aspirations that that was the missing link because if someone needs to know how to play a drum roll you can figure it out or you can go on youtube how to make a career you, you can't you can't youtube that i mean you know so that was where the information was needed and i and i just found it more enjoyable and i'm like you know what honestly i don't need to bring drumsticks and sweat i can just sit down and talk to you guys you know and we can just really get right into it because there's so much to talk about so that that's where it morphed into um to calling them workshops you know now you work with different people you track stuff and that, that's what fascinates me is you know we've come to a day and age where you can sit there and you can do a, an album with someone and they can be you know anywhere like i I'm, I'm friendly with david the drummer from the hooters and he does that and you know mm -hmm. there's people from all over that they send stuff how do you get in that and is it harder for you i mean you're you're a trained musician you know you've been playing forever but is it hard for you sometimes to just track something when you're not actually meeting that person and meeting that person and saying let's sit down and gig how, what's the process for doing this i would say probably 60 to 70 percent of my clients the people whose uh, records I play on, I don't meet them, <clears throat> and, and they're not at the session. So, um, you know, logistically what that's like is people either, you know, reach out to me through my website, which is Matt Star Music, or they see me, they just know me from playing with Mr. Big or Ace Fraley, or they see me there, or they hear about me, and then they'll message me on Facebook, hey, do you do drum tracks? And occasionally what I'll do is, I go into the studio once once a month, no matter what, and sometimes it's more than that. But so I'll have you know five tracks from this artist, two from this artist, one from this person, you know, and so I'll I'll put them all on a day, and I'll go in and just do a whole day of tracking. So I'll put the word out as well. And um, yeah, I mean you know on on the technical side, I connect them with my my, my recording engineer, and they send the files, so like the Pro Tools session or whatever they created it in, and. Then they'll give me direction. I mean, sometimes they say, look, man, I love your drum. Just do your thing. And other times they'll have, you know, uh, drums that they programmed or they played themselves or somebody else played and they want to improve upon it. And uh, and that's it. And then so I go in and work and uh, and send it. And I've, I've, I, I had one person say, oh, man, you didn't go crazy enough on this part. <laughs> like, I wanted you to go nuts. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, re I'll redo that. I'll, I'll put a bunch more fill. But uh, other than that, I haven't had anybody, you know, say, "Oh man, this wasn't what I was was what it wasn't what I was thinking," you know. But that's that's really the the, the the logistics of it. And there are plenty of guys that are 
making a living doing this, especially guys that have a studio in their home, and and they're not touring and they're not playing with name artists and they're not in drum magazines. They're just they promoted themselves on the internet and gotten the word out there and and their price is right for their clients and so it, it's definitely a, a business model. I mean, it's that's kind of the way it gets done. You know, it's, it's rare and I love it when it happens, but when you get enough of a budget that everybody's going to go into a room together and rent a studio and hang out and do some work and then have lunch and then do some more work and you know that's. That's kind of the uh, the old days. Again, I I love doing it, but uh, that happens less and less. Now, how did you get into giving lessons? And then, do you do them online also? And is that is that a hard thing to do? I mean, I guess now with Skype and everything, we can do anything. Because I also I do some podcast coaching and coach people in interviewing styles. And you know, when you do it on Skype, it's good. But I'm just talking to them. You have to actually be you know showing something. When did you, have you always given lessons or, and, and does your price go up when you get bigger gigs? I, um, I, I started out giving lessons when I was living in Connecticut. I was, I taught at a Connecticut Valley school of music and dance. So I was doing half hour lessons for kids from ages five to 17, you know? So I had many, many years of experience doing lessons. And then when I got out here, I knew what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do as far as lessons went. And then uh, I had somebody reach out to me and say, oh, man, when I come to L.A., I can't wait to take a lesson from you. And I'm thinking, can't we do that now? How can we do that? And I'm like, what about Skype? And so I asked a couple friends of mine who do this, and they said, yeah, it's, it's easy. And I was concerned because of not being in the room with the person. And, and occasionally you might someone might be struggling with something and you go, hey, let me, let me see the sticks. Let me sit down for a second. I'm going to play. You watch me. And that's a great way to learn. Now, with Skype, you can't do that. And so what that's done is changed. Now when I'm in the room with people, I'm, I'm taking the sticks out of their hands less and less, if at all. And I'm letting them just work through it, which I think is actually a much better opportunity for them to learn. So, um, yeah, and, there's, and I have a little thing I send out once we do that if, when it's on Skype. There's some setting on their audio where... Skype has a compressor that keeps, you know, if you're talking, keeps your voice at a certain volume. But if you do a loud noise, it, it drops the volume all of a sudden so you can't hear the person. And then it comes back up as they keep talking. So they have to adjust that. But other than that, technically, it works fine. Now, how did you foray into public speaking? I know because I know Rich Redman does that. And, uh, you know, it seems, well, it seems, first of all, before you answer that question, I want to ask you this. Why is it, it seems that drummers are always hustling? You guys always have, you know, I think it may be because I always say, you know, we can talk about guitarists and lead singers, but for me, the most talented person in my eyes is a drummer because you have to use both your feet, both your hands, be aware of everything. You guys have a lot going on. I mean, you're using the right side and the left side of your brain. You know, you're creative and then you're doing this. Is that one of the reasons why you think you guys have so much crap going on? Because you guys, you guys just have like 87 projects going on, but then you act like it's just like, Oh, yeah, I just sat down and have a drink. Yeah. Well, the reality is we don't have publishing on anything. So we're having to keep working. <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, there is some truth to that in so much as, you know, if someone starts a band, it's usually the singer or the guitar player or the songwriter. So they're going to be the core of the band. And, you know, if the band keeps going, if anyone's going to drop off, it might be the bass player or the drummer. It's those spinal tap they went through, however many drummers, you know, last guy spontaneously combusted. So, 
you know, that's the joke. But I think the drummer is is um, often the one that that gets replaced, which is for us great because then there's an opportunity there. Um, I think from doing clinics, that really lends itself to the public speaking thing. And actually, we had uh, we had a hang here uh, when Rich Redman was in town uh, last week, and we were talking about that. And I think just you doing a clinic. It can easily move into doing a workshop, and then it can easily move into just doing straight up public speaking. So, um, I think that's that's uh, a bit of the uh, kind of the trajectory there. Now, I know you you know you play drums, but I know the ultimate it's the ultimate jam. Do you still do that? Yeah, I'm still involved with that. Now, I know you sang a lot there. When did did you start drumming when you were a kid first, or did you start singing? What was your Coral, what was your path in getting into the music? Were you a drummer first, or were you a singer first, or did you do both at first? I tried to be a guitar player, and Santa Claus would not let me. So I was in fourth grade. We had the J.C. Penny catalog, which was really kind of the you know the old school version of the analog version of Amazon, where you would flip through the catalog, and they had everything from you know snow tires to uh, baby clothes to musical instruments. And I found a Les Paul copy in there that looked like, you know, Ace Fraley's guitar, and a little amplifier, and I told my mom, this, and that's what I want for Christmas, and usually they would never let me, they would never tell me what they were getting me, they go, okay, you know, they'd always go, we'll tell Santa, and this time I'm like, you know, I'm like, I know there's no Santa, but that, that they just never wanted to let on what they were going to get me, and um, so I asked for that, and then finally my mom goes, okay, okay, we'll get it, I thought, okay, great, Christmas morning comes, I come downstairs, there's a bike, and a, and a record player with a, with a Kiss album and a Cheap Trick album. And I'm going, oh, my God, all this? Oh, and I'm getting my guitar. And, and so I, I, like, check out all this stuff, and then I go, hey, where's the guitar? I mean, like, just such a brat. I'm like, where's the guitar? And my mom goes, well, you know, we thought if you knew what you were getting, you'd be disappointed. I said, no, I'm disappointed because I thought I was getting a freaking guitar. So anyway, I moved around the house for a week, and then my mom was like, look, if you want, you can play drums. They have um, in the school band. You can you can get a pair of sticks and a pad. And I said, ah, I don't want to do that. And then I, you know, a couple of days later, I was like, okay, I'll try it. So that that started me off. So playing drums, you know, uh, since sixth sixth grade, and then um, mostly self-taught, just playing the records, playing to you know Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast, uh, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, uh, Kiss, Rock and Roll Over, uh, ACDC, Highway to Hell, and Dirty Deeds. It was all that, all that stuff, you know, that that late seventies thing, and um, and then in my twenties I started singing, and then I started writing, and so I went from like my mid twenties to my mid thirties. I was probably spent more time fronting and writing and singing and being a frontman, and I had a band called, I had a couple different bands, but um, the, la the last one was the Automatic Music Explosion. We did a record with Mike Chapman, who was my favorite producers, producers Sweet and The Knack and Blondie and um, so many amazing artists. Um, so that was kind of the trajectory, and then that led up to, you know, kind of my, my averted midlife crisis. Well, what was it, is it hard for you to go back, I mean, to be drumming, drumming, and then being lead singing up front? I mean, is it something that, you know, when you were singing, would you also be playing drums, or were you being a front man? No, I never wanted to do both. I just, I didn't think it was cool, and no offense to Phil Collins, but I just didn't think that it was cool. And 
when I finally, again, got the humility and was like, you know what, I'm just going to be available for gigs, the first the first professional situation I get is Ace Frehley, but they said, but here's the deal. The drumming is one thing, but we need someone who can sing all the Paul Stanley songs. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, once I finally stop trying to control everything, then I get a gig where I'm actually, I get to do both. So it's like, you know, go figure. Shows you how much I knew. Now, tell me about the band Burning Rain. I know you were involved with them. I know Doug's been on the show, and he's, as you said, you worked with him a while ago. He's an amazing guitarist. What was Burning Rain? What was that project? And, and, and what happened with you guys? That was something that uh, a band that was started by uh, Doug Aldrich, who was with uh, Dio and White Snake for many years, and now he's with the Dead Daisies. And a guitar, uh, singer named Keith St. John was with Montrose. And um, they, they, they had that band for quite a while. I don't know quite how long, but um, then they did a record called Epic Obsession, and uh, that's when I came on board. And Sean McNabb, uh, who's with uh, Dokken and Lynch Mob, was on bass. And uh, we did a bunch of shows and uh, did a, a one or two videos. And everywhere I go, I get somebody asking, hey, man, when are you guys going to do the next record? And um, I don't know. It's just a matter of getting everybody's schedules together. It's always been, uh, you know, the challenge with that. So there's been talk about it um, in the last year, but uh, I don't really know. So, you know, but it's basically a hard rock band and um, just great players. Every time we play, I'm always... I, I forget how good the band is, and then we play, and I go, my God, this is such a great group of musicians, you know? Now, there's songwriting. I mean, you know, you said you, you were writing back then, and you still write, you know, you write for different people. How is your songwriting, when it, how do you see it's changed over the years, and do you do it as much as you want to? Uh, I do it as much as I want to. Uh, I, I, don't, I haven't done it much in the last few years, and that, that's okay. Um, I can see myself getting back into to it, uh, moving forward, and, and ultimately doing a record with with. I have so many talented friends; it would be a lot of fun to to put that together. Um, but it's changed over the years. I think back in the beginning, it sounded a lot like everything I liked. So it was like Cheap Trick, Joan Jett, The Ramones, Kiss. It was like right in that that niche, and kinds of different stuff i have some kind of sort of neil young type things i have some more like soulful kind of chris cornellish type stuff and um so yeah it, it it really has evolved and then i've written with other people for other projects and so that's always fun too because it that takes on a totally different flavor now you've also done some producing explain to the listeners what a producer, a music producer does. You know, we all know Hollywood producers do this and that and this, and a TV writer is basically called an executive producer, even though he's still a writer, it's just a bump in the uh, salary and the position. What is? What do you do when you produce someone? So, what I'll, I'll start with what a producer is not, and it's, it's not a guy who has Pro Tools and some microphones, and he says, I'll record your band. That's not a producer. That, that might be an engineer, because the engineer does the technical side of things. So the producers that I've had the pleasure of working with, and there's been a lot of amazing, very successful producers, they produce the song, they produce the band, they produce the personalities, they produce the situation. So you might be turning knobs, but, but 
but that's not your your main job. Your main job is to recognize something that's good and make it better and recognize something that's maybe not working and either fix it or get rid of it. And you want to really play on the strengths of the band. You want to shine a light on what they do well. And so, you know, the way I work with artists is I'm, I'm just, just first of all, just recognizing that a band or an artist has something really special. And then, you know, figuring out how can, what the strengths and who is this person and, and are there things about their personality as an artist that they, that maybe they don't recognize that we can bring out. So like to give an example, there was a, there's a band called the Aviators and super talented, kick-ass rock and roll band, five piece, two guitars. And they, they, I saw them perform at the whiskey and they had like an ACDC type sound. Uh, the singer August can sing anything and, uh, and the band's just great. <laughs> But they're, they they live out in they live out east, and once you get out east, it's like it, it's, it feels like you're in the middle of America. And I there was there was just a, a like a southern thing about them, even though none of the guys were from down south. And there was a sense of humor about them when I talked to them, and and kind of a, a just a, uh, you know just a, an easygoing nature. And I did he just reminded me of Skinner, and I said you know let's. Let's 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 focus on that part. And the singer again had a great sense of humor. Reminded me a lot of Bon Scott. So like, certain people can deliver a lyric, and other people, if they tried to do it, it just it wouldn't work. And and, and this is the kind of guy like he can just kind of sing anything. So, um, so that was something. So we really focused on that, and we just we cut three songs up at the Grohl Studio, and that the, it it changed their sound. You know, it's 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 much more in that kind of southern rock which now allows them to kind of branch over into the country market. So so it, you're looking at, you know, things from from a strategic point because again, this is this is the music business, but you're also just looking at what you can bring out the best in everybody. And that's having been a drummer and a singer and a guitar player, you know the different personalities. You can recognize, oh okay, I, I just met this bass player. I, I know this guy, you know, I know what what his thing is. So you know how you can talk to them, how you can work with them and get the best out of them and then again you're managing the time when you're in there you know like keeping the vibe good but keeping things moving along and then deciding when you know that's a good take or that's not or let's try this and try that so there's a lot of logistical stuff and there's a lot of managing and dealing with personalities that's kind of the main thing and then also the music is in there as well but it's again the actual recording part that's that's the engineering side that's that's more of a technical thing now, as a, as a true musician, you know, and you've been playing for a long time, and I talked to Rich about this, how like, you know, the, like a tambourine player or different things, everything's getting replaced by Pro Tools or stuff like that. How does that you make you feel as a musician? Because, you know, you've been busting your balls for your whole life, really learning your craft, and all of a sudden it can get watered down. Does that irritate a lot of drummers? Because it seems like the percussion and the drummers are the ones who sometimes get the short end of the stick with the damn drum machine and stuff like that. Yes, I punched many computer screens. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it is just a logistic. You know, I, I, the drums is the most challenging thing to record, and I think a good drummer is the hardest thing to find. So if you can record a guitar in a closet, you can record a guitar. You can sit your bed, plug your guitar into your computer, and you can go. You can't record a drum set like that. You know, if you try and do it in an apartment building, you're going to get kicked out. So just logistically, it requires a lot more. So I get it, um, but there's nothing like a real drummer to make a track feel alive. You can do the guitars in your 
in your bedroom, and you can sing the vocals in your closet. But the drums to have live, real drums, yeah. You know, I mean, how do I feel about it? Look, man, I don't begrudge technology. You know, I don't want to be walking around with a with a turntable under my arm. I'm glad I can just have my phone and plug in my earbuds and you know go to go for a walk and then listen to my my music. So, um, you know, it is what it is. But but there's nothing like it. And I will say, um, there is you know there is a, a tendency. And I just um, this producer named Warren Hewart who did uh, the last couple of Fairly Records and um, worked with Aerosmith, and we just did a, a thing on his on his YouTube channel and. Um, you know, we were talking about this. Technology art is, is a joke. It's not real. I mean, if you think you, you can make something perfect, you're going to make yourself crazy. You know, great works of art are never completed, only abandoned, right? So it's, it's the, the, the tendency and the temptation to try and fix something and make it perfect, you, what you've got to recognize, and this goes back to being a producer, is recognizing greatness, See, because I can tell you when it's perfect. It's perfectly in tune, and it's perfectly in time. That does not mean anything. When I can, if someone can tell you that was magical, that had something special. That is where the value is. That's why. That's why you're going to keep going back and listening to it again and again. So, you know, I've had sessions where I've cut drums, and then I and they say, "Hey, here's the finished product," and I'm listening, going, "I can't hear myself in there because they took my drums and they they." edited them to be on the grid, which means perfectly, anyone to anyone doesn't know, to be perfectly lined up, absolute perfect time, you know, like a drum machine. And so I can't hear my swing. I can't hear my character, you know. So it has changed uh, the way I play drums because I end up doing, I end up playing some more fills than I normally would because that's the only way I can get my personality. You know, I could just play boom, bat, boom, boom, bat, and if you just leave it alone, I'll, it'll have personality. But if someone needs it to be perfect, quote unquote, then I gotta go boom, bat, boom, boom, bat, take it to good dad, take it to good dad, crap. But because then I gotta put in one of my things, so you can grid that fill, but it's still gonna have my personality on it. So it is what it is. But ultimately, the things that are most exciting to me are human emotion and people really doing something and going for it. And that's never perfect. Never, ever, never. Now, you mentioned your humidor at home, and I've seen pictures. When did you become a, a big cigar smoker? And have you ever tried to get, like, a cigar aficionado, because you are a celebrity drummer, have you ever tried to get into that magazine? That is a great idea. Thank you for that. No, that has literally never crossed my mind. I'm going to add that to my to-do list. I love it. Um, I went down to Key West with my wife and her family, and, uh, you know, whenever I go anywhere, I like to just try whatever they're doing, you know what I mean? So you go to Italy, you're going to have some wine, some cheese, some prosciutto, you know, wherever you go, you're going to try what they do there, because that's part of traveling and experiencing life. So there, they're, you know, they're not very far from Cuba, so there's a lot of cigars and people rolling cigars. Uh, and so I said, let me try a cigar, and I never smoked cigarettes, I never tried a cigar, and I enjoyed it. It was relaxing. There was something kind of contemplative. I think that's the right word. And my grandfather was a first generation from Sicily, and he would always smoke a cigar after dinner, and he'd sit out on the uh, on the porch, and he'd just kind of stare off, kind of just collecting his thoughts, you know. And and I get it. I get it now, you know. So uh, yeah, I really enjoy doing that. And there's a lot of us musicians that are cigar guys. So, uh, 
you know, we have little pockets of guys that will get together and share cigars and, and give them as gifts. And uh, it's a cool, it's a cool little, little thing. Now with Mr. Big, are, is the touring done? Are you guys going out again or what, where is that at right now? There's uh, last year was pretty extensive. I think we we're out for about five months, but uh, this year I know they have stuff. I've gotten messages from fans about some European festivals. And then there's, I believe there's some talk about possibly some other stuff before that. Um, but I, I don't think that's been confirmed yet. So short answer is yes, there is more to come. And uh, as far as what that is, I'm not exactly sure. Now, in your career, what's the what would you say is the biggest crowd you've ever played in front of? Uh, probably around 20,000. And done that on a few different occasions. The first time was uh, with Ace Fraley. We did a, um, a festival up in, uh, I think, Erie, Pennsylvania. On the lake, uh, right off of the lake, and uh, and that was a lot of fun. So yeah, that was that was that was that's probably the biggest. So what what do you have planned for like the next? What what what's planned for the next like three months for you? I mean, what what, what do you sit there? You know, you're doing the, the lessons, you're producing, the speaking. Do you have do you know what, do you know where your directions are going to go? I mean, because when you're Mr. Big, you knew exactly where you were going. You were touring, but now because you have your hat, you have a hat and so many rings, what are your plans for the next three months? What would you like to see happen? <clears throat> what I'd like to see happen is just to be really busy producing and uh, doing sessions and doing uh, one-on-one career coaching and then doing my speaking. Um, I know we have, uh, I'm going to be doing some shows with Gilby Clark in March. Uh, Gilby's from Guns N' Roses. He's got a new album that I uh, played on along with a, a bunch of other amazing drummers. And um, so uh, we're going to do some dates. I'm playing with JoLynn Turner from Rainbow next month, um, and uh, that's pretty much it. So, uh, you know, I have some things that are booked, but as far as like you know, performing in public, those are those are the things that are that are locked in at the moment. So, I, but I that said, I, I don't mind being home. You know, I was gone a lot last year. I got two little kids, and I really uh, am enjoying being home. And, uh, and I love being on the road, too, but it's, it's nice to be home, and it's, I'm glad I'm going to be home for a good chunk of time. Now, do the kids have music? Are they interested in music? Do they, do they, do they have a concept, concept of what that their daddy goes out and plays drums in front of big audiences and, and has adoring fans? Do your kids understand that, or are they still too young to get that? I think they understand it to a degree. I mean, they've seen me perform. Um, one of my favorite pictures is, a picture of my son Xander. He's sitting on a road case behind me, and I'm up on this riser, you know, doing a show. And but you, all you can see is him kind of sitting there, cross-legged, with, and you can see the the lights from the stage kind of coming down and uh, you know landing on his head. And I, I just I love that he sees me doing what I love to do. And and whether or not they they get into it is you know I, I have no opinion on that. We did get my son a drum set this year, so he's four and a half. Uh, he goes up there and wails on it, you know, and then he takes his transformer and throws it off the balcony. So, I mean, he's got all kinds of stuff he's into, but um, he does have, you know, he does have an understanding of rhythm. I've seen him when he picks up the sticks, he'll play and sing, and I'm like, that sounds pretty good, you know. So, uh, we'll see. I haven't, I haven't even 
tried to show him anything. I said to him, hey, buddy, if you ever want me to show you something, just let me know. And he goes, okay. And then he just wails away. So <laughs> That's awesome. We'll see. Manny, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, people, his uh, Matt's website is Matt Star Music, and it's star with two R's. It's Matt Star Music. Go there. It's a great website. It has everything listed. It has his career coaching, his drum tracks, his store. It's 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 one stop shopping. You got to go there. Now, do you are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, and that's Matt Star Music as well. But I'm not really on there a whole lot. I I can't figure out Twitter, but I I've been loving Instagram. So I'm on Instagram again, Matt Star Music, and I'm on Facebook again, Matt Star Music. So it's all it's all the same. It's all branded the same. Instagram has been fun putting up pictures and little captions or no captions or. Or whatever. Are you are you a Twitter guy? Have you? Have yeah, you I, I tweet. I tweet a lot. I tweet. I'm, I'm people. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. Got, got it. Okay. So, so yeah, if you need any and hints, hints, just send me a text and we'll figure it out. So people, go follow Matt. Also, as I said, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Go see Matt on Instagram. I'm at Cooper Talk One on Instagram. And what you'll see on Instagram is a lot of promotions for my show and a lot of uh, what I do is called Eat Healthy and Cheap. Because as you know, a few years ago I had that. Uh, that heart problem. So when I got out, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 recipes, low sodium, cooking for one. Easy recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. You don't have cumin? Don't worry. There's no ingredients with cumin. But I made something with cumin a few weeks ago. It's a great spice, so get it. So you can go see pictures there. And for my cookbook, you can go to my website, stopthesalt.com. You can get it at Amazon, but you can get it at stopthesalt.com. And I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. And also my website is coopertalknet. You can find 670 episodes up there. Send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you guys next week.